Welcome to the 253rd episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. Stay tuned for my interview with Bob Prohl, author of the novels The Nobody People and 100,000 Worlds. And just a note, this interview was originally recorded when 100,000 Worlds was originally published in 2016. Stay tuned for the interview with Bob Prohl. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Bob Prohl, author of 100,000 Worlds. Bob, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. Great. Well, can you read two or three pages from 100,000 Worlds? Yeah, I'd be happy to. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read right from the beginning. Um, this is the first chapter, and it's called Travelogue. Alex Torrey, nine but small for his age, writes the names of the places on the exit signs in his notebook. Below each, he rewrites the name backwards. He reads them aloud, quietly, so his mother can't hear him over the radio. Collections of random syllables, impossible strings of consonants. It's tough work, but finding a magic word ought to be. There are useless abracadabras and hocus-pocus lying around everywhere, but ones that still have magic in them, that haven't had it all sucked out, are harder to find. Plucky kid reporter Brian Bryson spent days in the dim-lit archives of the Metro City Public Library, eyes bleeding tears behind thick glasses before he stumbled upon the word that turned him into Captain Wonder, champion of six ancient gods. Excelsior, Alex says. If it worked for Brian Bryson, it might still have a little magic in it. The word uttered, he is still a boy in the backseat of a Honda Civic. He humphs and returns to his list. Pronunciation and emphasis may be the key. Ak at I. Olaf Fub. Alu Bathsa. Nothing. Most of central Pennsylvania had been dull, but occasionally there were Iroquois place names that sounded magical backward and forward. Alex chewed them like gum that refused to lose its flavor, then asterisked them in his notebook as worthy of further investigation. Now and then, his mother checks the rear view and sees his lips forming odd shapes, but the sounds are drowned out by one sputtering NPR station after another. Alex cannot understand why she can't bear him talking to her while she drives, but she can stand the talk radio prattling on it endlessly. As they pass from one station to the next, discussions are repeated, and Alex's mother seems to take comfort in this. She laughs at the jokes again, nods with more insistent agreement at opinions she's already heard. Alex pages back through the notebook to see what he wrote yesterday about their visit to the Idea Man. The G train rocks back and forth like a real train, his notebook says. The Idea Man's building is like a castle. And on a page, on a page otherwise blank, the thing he'd asked for, his parting gift, an idea. Alex feels special that this one was for him, that Lewis didn't write it in the book, like all the others, for anyone who can afford to read it. There's a boy. He wakes up in a cave, alone. He doesn't know where he is or who he is. In the cave with him, there's a robot, roughly the size and shape of a man, but it's broken. Alex tried to get more information, but the idea man clammed up. Does the boy know how to fix the robot? Alex asked, and the idea man shrugged. I'm wondering that myself, he said to Alex. Now it's Alex's job to wonder to ponder on it. Where there was nothing, now there is a boy and a cave and a broken robot. They form a still, quiet spot at the center of Alex's mind, a blank made up of information he doesn't have yet, things he needs to fill in. Alex runs his finger along the words he wrote yesterday. Still feel carved into the page. Soon they'll flatten out, but for now they are still paths across the page, still have depth and curvature. Alex is aware that they're moving west with some kind of intention, as if they're checking off things on the way. It's not simply a trip for the sake of a trip, but he can't figure out what the purpose is. 
he's tried to glean as much information as he can from her, from the idea man before they left, but it doesn't amount to a full story. Something is missing, a motive, some reason. A number of times he's asked her how long they're going for altogether. It's not an important question. There's nothing in New York that won't wait for him. But each time she changes the subject. Alex's suggestions for things they might do on the drive back, which have included, in no particular order, Mount Rushmore, seeing a cowboy, Old Faithful, seeing a prairie dog, and Canada, have likewise been deflected. It's as if they'll get there and slingshot back to New York in a second, or keep going west, across the ocean, until they hit land again, and then make their way around the world to end up once again safe in their apartment in Brooklyn Heights. Alex thinks of their car traveling across a green sea. Traveling is the strongest magic word he knows, that and home. Ago high ook, he says, knowing it's not right, even as he chokes it out. Magic words sound like magic words. Alex closes the notebook and opens the book he was reading, Adam Anti and the book I I read. It is the first in a series about a boy who grows up in Brooklyn before discovering he has magic powers. He's almost done with it, but he has the second one in his backpack. His mother packed his clothes and then threw open their biggest suitcase in the middle of Alex's room and told him to add anything he wanted, anything he thought he might need. He looked around his room, assessing six years' accumulation of toys, and closing the suitcase like a great giant clam, he picked two books and some notebooks off the shelf and declared he was ready to go. Alex dives back into Adam Anti, which is exciting, even if his favorite parts were the ones set in Brooklyn. It's amazing when a story brushes up against your real life. It feels as if the characters might pass you on the street. As he reads, he glances up often to keep an eye on the road signs as they zip past, loving the story he's reading, but worried he might miss a magic word as it goes by. Great. Well, if someone listening hasn't heard about 100,000 Worlds yet, how would you describe your novel? Uh, it's a road trip novel. It's uh, it's about a, uh, a single mother named Valerie Torrey, who's a former cult television actress, and she and her nine-year-old son, Alex, um, who's the sort of point of view for that chapter, are traveling cross-country, and she's making appearances at a series of comic book conventions. And something uh, that Alex isn't quite aware of is, is going to happen when they uh, when they get to the West Coast, there's something that his mother is keeping back from him, some piece of information. And do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to writing 100,000 Worlds? Yeah, I mean, it was partly wanting to do a, a book that dealt with comic book conventions. I mean, I'm a big comic book fan and have been going to cons for a really long time. And um, I remember I was heading up to uh, to New York Comic Con, which um, – you have to, you sort of get off the train in Times Square and then you, you hike like half an hour, uh, uptown and, um, and seeing the sort of seeing that community sort of rise out of the, the general population, you know, getting closer and closer to the convention center. And there's, there's more and more people in, in costumes and, uh, and wearing, you know, t-shirts of superheroes or video game characters. And, um, I really wanted to, um, to set a piece in that, this kind of environment where where narrative is so valued um and like imagination is so prioritized um so there it was partly that and it was partly the experience of being at the time a fairly new step parent um my my stepson was uh was eight when i started uh, started working on this book so a lot of it was about um sort of uh getting a sense of how he and i fit together and and what what parenting was going to be like, um, for me. 
And so when you were writing the book, did you did you think about um, any of the experiences that you've had at comic book conventions? I mean, you just mentioned the one where people were walking to uh, the convention center. Any others come to mind? Um, you know, once I started working on the book, I, I kind of changed the way I went to conventions. <laughs> I was, you know, I was there, but I was also kind of researching. Um, so a lot of it was just kind of taking little observations and writing them in my notebook about like, the way crowds moved or the, like the particular smell of a comic book convention on, on its third day in the summer. Uh, <laughs> That's not a pleasant smell. <laughs> no, it's, it's not. Um, and, uh, so yeah, it wasn't, it, I kind of, I moved myself a little to the outside and became a little more, uh, observational than perhaps participatory, uh, as I was, as it became research rather than just going to conventions. Sure. So as a comic book um, fan, do you have um, do you have certain um, comic book heroes or science fiction um, series or books that you're that you're, you know, are your particular favorites? Uh, I'm, I'm pretty, pretty Catholic in my comic book tastes. Um, I kind of, uh, you know, it's I've been reading comics since I was in my teens. And it's just some it's just a habit that I've never really given up. I like that and coffee are, are sort of my two longest standing habits, I suppose. Um, so I, I read, I still read a lot of superhero comics and, you know, um, I don't know that I have a particular favorite. It, it varies, uh, on any particular week or depending on who the writer is or who the artist is. Sure. So what was your writing journey prior to writing a hundred thousand world? Um, you know, I was, uh, this book was very, a very different writing experience than I had had before. Um, I, I had a, an academic sorry, so, something happened to your mic. I can't hear you. Oh, that's okay. Uh, I had an academic book published through academic press. I'm sorry. I had a nonfiction book published through an academic press, um, probably eight years ago, uh, a bit of music journalism and, that was still, you know, I was working day jobs and also night jobs and you just kind of, you write when you can, um, and you, you carve out time in your day. And that was generally how writing was for me through most of my twenties. Um, and then this book, I, um, you know, I'd started to get a little traction. I got a, a fellowship from, uh, the, the New York foundation for the arts and I got a, a residency and that's really where, where this book came together was, uh, was at an at an artist residency um, where I was I was basically writing 15 hour days. You know, there was nothing else to do. You're kind of out in the woods, and the internet is kind of spotty. And so I just was just very close with the book for for a long period of time, which was very different from from what I was used to. You know, uh, you get used to writing when you're already kind of exhausted, and it's the kind of thing that is it may be primary in your heart, but it's sort of secondary in your time because you're not getting, getting paid for it. Sure. So are you working on another novel now? Uh, I am hopefully finished with another novel. Um, okay. that's somewhat up for debate. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and now I'm in the, the sort of odd position of getting ready to try to start on something new for kind of the first time in, like two years I've, you know, this one, um, this one was written very quickly. Um, and we spent a long time editing it once it was sold. 
And, and then there was another project that I had started while I was trying to shop this book around. And that's the one that I'm just kind of coming to the end of. And now we're about to hopefully take that to my editor. And, and now I'm kind of looking at a blank page for the first time in a very, very, in what feels like three years. Um, so that's terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, as you know, superhero and science fiction movies and television shows, as well as comic books are woven into pop culture now more than ever. And it seems like a lot of the hard lines that were once drawn around those genres have kind of fallen away. Has that changed something you thought about as you were writing a hundred thousand worlds? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, certainly it, it seemed like a moment when there was an interest in, because there is still as much as superheroes are, have become like culturally ubiquitous comic books are still pretty much a, a subculture. You know, the, the readership for comic books is still like, it's a fraction of, of the number of people that go to movies with the same characters in them. Um, so I really wanted to catch that moment and that sort of difference, you know, um, and this changes the nature of what comic cons are like and who's going, you know, five, 10 years ago, it was pretty hardcore fans. Um, people who are way into comic books or way into video games or, or what have you. And now it's more of, like you say, a sort of a pop cultural, uh, event. So that was something that I wanted to look at is like, it's a, it's an industry and it's a genre that's in this really interesting moment of, um, you know, adolescence in a certain way and, and ubiquity in a certain way. And like people are wondering if there's going to be a sort of a, a burnout, or, or like a crash of these kinds of movies. But for right now, there um, it's really neat for me as someone who's a longtime comic book fan that these that these are part of the like the general pop cultural language now in a way that they weren't when I was a kid. Sure. And and what do you attribute in terms of the small readership of comic books? I mean, there's there's been a lot of people who have written about that over the years. And one of the big complaints is that um uh is that the um is that the stories and mythologies uh for comic books are 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 so I'm not sure if I would use the word convoluted, but it's hard it's it's a hard entry point if someone just picks up the latest Flash yep. or or um, X Men. Convoluted is is exactly right. Um, X Men being the worst. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know it, it's a funny thing as a longtime comic book fan, where like the very thing that to some extent keeps me in the industry and keeps me reading is the very thing that is the sort of bar to entry for new readers. Like I love the deep continuity of comics. I love the idea that like the Marvel comics universe is this sort of almost like living narrative organism that's been around for, you know, since the, the early sixties, but it does, it's almost impenetrable. And there are, there are lots of efforts and we're talking, I'm talking mostly about superhero comics rather sure, than sure. Yeah. various other forms of comics that are a little more accessible to new readers. But yeah, it's like without a guide. Um, I mean, X-Men is a perfect example. I would never hand anybody an X-Men comic and then just walk away. You have to kind of stand there with them and say like, well, you well, what you need to know is that 10 years ago, this happened. And then as a result, this, this, and this, and like, you, you need a, you need a map. And it is, it's the continuity is daunting. And, um, and so there, there are some of us who've been reading for a long time who really like that. 
but it, it, it makes it hard to bring new readers in. Yep. So, so what advice would you have for aspiring writers who might be listening and are interested in writing their own novels or short stories? Uh, you know, I, I would say two things. Um, one is persistence. Um, you know, you're constantly dealing with rejection once you're putting the work out there. And this is, this is a sort of second stage stuff. This is like not about doing the work and I'll, I'll get back to that in a second. But part of it is, you know, you're, you're submitting stories for publication or you're querying agents for a novel, but you're, you're putting yourself out there and you're getting smacked around all the time. And the fact is like, it, it only has to work once, you know, once you start uh, like with this one, I had a previous novel that I, I wrote to 60 agents about and, and it went nowhere. Um, and it was like, two years really of trying to find a home for this book. And the, the home is now a drawer in my desk. Um, but this book went very quickly. Like the second agent that I wrote to picked it up and, and you have to keep sort of pounding at it until it works. But the other, the other thing that's sort of more important is um, I think letting yourself make mistakes in the first draft is so key is so important and to not get, blocked by this idea that you need to get it right the first time you know editing editing for me takes about anywhere from three to five times as long as drafting does and i expect that and i expect that most of the work is going to be is going to be fixing stuff but unless you have something on the page you can't fix it so when you're when you're sitting down like not being overwhelmed by this idea that your first draft has to be this glistening and lovely thing um, that it's going to be full of mistakes and that's, and that's fine. That's in fact, really good. Sure. So when you, when you sit down to write, are there ever days that you need to do something to jumpstart the writing process for yourself? Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. There are <laughs> lots of days like that. Um, for me, I, this, this project, the, um, hundred thousand worlds was great for, for that because there was so much, um, like world building I could do, you know, I could, if, if there was a day where just like prose wasn't clicking for me, I would just come up with fake comic book characters as, as opposed to real comic book characters. Um, you know, I, I would come up with storylines for, uh, fake TV shows and I would sort of write around the project to find my way back into it. Um, and you can do that even with, you know, with, fiction that isn't that doesn't have that kind of world building aspect to it you know one thing for me that that often works is just doing dialogue is just putting two characters sort of in a room knowing that it's probably not stuff that's going to make it to the page um and just having two characters sort of talk at each other and it's a good exercise in like getting speech cadence and getting ideas about who your characters are and but doing it in a way that like, again, being sort of free from the idea of making mistakes, um, doing it in a way that's, that's a little more low pressure. I, I, I find that that's often a good way to get back into a work. If I'm, if it's pushing back at me, if it's not working. Are there books and authors that inspire your own writing? Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, endlessly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, can you, can you name a few or, or recent ones? Oh, geez. Uh, well, with this book, um, what sort of helped me through a block was uh, was The Blind Assassin by Margaret Atwood. 
which is a brilliant book and um, and one that I find I go back to quite a bit. And Atwood is fantastic and is is one of my favorites. Um, but I, um, yeah, it it just varies greatly. It, it's it's sort of anything I pick up. Um, I don't have like particular like authors that I follow or that I, you know, that I read sort of religiously anymore. Um, I, I try to keep up with contemporary stuff, um, as much as I, <laughs> as much as that's ever possible. Sure. Uh, and, and I'm just consistently impressed by, you know, you, you learn to read differently. So you read, reading as a writer involves like going into somebody's book and seeing what tricks they have that you don't. Um, you know, like I read a little life and, uh, she does this amazing thing with pronouns. And I was like, wow, never seen anybody do that with pronouns. Um, which is a weird takeaway from a 700 page book. But, um, yeah, so I, I don't know if it's so much inspiration as it is like stealing other people's tricks or, or learning, you know, learning by watching somebody who does certain things better that, than you do. Um, which is what I, what I go into a book kind of looking for. Sure. Sure. So where can people find you online if they're interested in learning more about you and your book, a hundred thousand worlds? Uh, they can find me at Twitter on Twitter. Uh, I'm at Bob Prohl on Twitter and that, that's probably the best one. Um, I have a, a little website that the publisher set up for me. That's Bob And that has, um, that has events listings. I'm going to be sort of around and about for the next, um, the next couple of weeks, um, doing readings for the book. And, um, yeah, so those, those are the two big spots to find me at. Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Bob Prohl, author of a hundred thousand worlds. The book is in bookstores now, so go grab a copy and Bob, thanks for doing this interview. Hey, thanks very much for having me. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.